0: Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Our second reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the old women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you, about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Lord, may your word live in us, and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. <clears throat> Many people in the modern Western societies think of God as something like the way they think of Santa Claus. That is, a genial figure, whom you address only when you want something. Then hope he'll be kind if he considers you sufficiently good. The truth about God is completely different. It's the inverse of Santa Claus. God is opposed to Santa Claus. I mean, according to the well-known Christmas song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, it's Santa's task to keep a list of those who do right and wrong, and he'll distribute gifts accordingly. In other words, Santa's gifts are conditioned. That is, he gives to those who've been good. Like most responsible givers, he gives only to worthy recipients and he finds out who they are. However, once his gifts have been given, there is no resulting relationship, no expression of gratitude, no expectation of a gift in return. Children write requests to Santa But does anybody write him a thank you letter afterwards? Or ask him how he's doing after Christmas? Santa's gifts are given to worthy recipients with no strings attached. This fits the moral ideals of modern Western individualism. The New Testament message of God's grace was the opposite. The gift of Christ was given to the ungodly in the absence of worth. And it was given to all. Without regard to preconditions of gender, ethnicity, status, success, there is no list and no selection determined by who's naughty or nice. And God's gift was given to transform those who receive it, to establish a permanent relationship. The receipt of his gift necessarily is expressed in gratitude, obedience, transformed behavior. Grace is free, unconditioned, but it is not cheap, without expectations or obligations. Those who receive it have remain within it, their lives altered by new habits, new dispositions, new practices of grace. Or in the words of our January series, grace transforms. Today, as Emma mentioned, we launch the big theme of this year in all the churches of Churchill Anglican. God's transforming grace will be our theme, our focus, and our light for 2020. And we begin here in January with a four-part series introductory, which unpack one sentence, one sentence of Paul's letter to Titus. Though it's more than one sentence in English, but it's for Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. <coughs> for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul left his delegate Titus on the island of Crete and gave him the task of ordering the very fresh church there. Christian community there. As you heard in in the reading just a moment ago, this sentence I've just read comes at the end of a section in which Paul urges Titus to teach the Christian believers (coughs) to conduct themselves in ways that will commend their behavior to those unbelieving and suspicious people around them, who no doubt thought the Christian cult was some sort of weird thing. Now, Roman, Greco Roman society in the Mediterranean in the first century is a very somewhat different to 20th century, 21st century Western Australian culture. And that's reflected somewhat in in the kind of things Paul emphasises, some which will seem natural to us, some will seem somewhat strange to us. More More about that another time. But the reason why Paul is urging this respectable, decent, and commendable behaviour, as important is, verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God, verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us, and verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Saviour, attractive. But there's another reason for good behaviour, far more important than trying to allay the fear and suspicion and misunderstanding of their neighbours. It's this reason, for the grace of God has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all in wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a much better reason to get your life's act together. And here in this passage, we see two aspects of the wonderful grace of God in Christ that we'll unpack both in this series and as the year progresses. One, it is given freely without counting the worth of the recipient. Two, it transforms those who receive it to become the kind of people the Lord wants as his own. It is given freely without counting the worth of recipients. It transforms those who receive it to become the kind of people the Lord wants for his own. Or to put in a phrase, grace transforms. Now for the rest of the time I have in this particular sermon, I'm going to focus on what in the English translation is just the first sentence. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Next week, I'll be back to look at the next part, verse 12. And then Justin will pick up the the next two in the series. But today, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Let me say something something about the word grace. The Greek word we normally translate grace, charis, was an ordinary term in Paul's day for benefit, gift or favour. It could also mean the attitude of benevolence or generosity that led to a benefit, gift, or favour. And it sometimes also mean the return of thanks or gratitude that accompanied a gift. In itself, the word grace is not a theologically loaded word. In itself, it's just a common word that means gift, grace, benefit. And gifts are voluntary, personal, and flow out of goodwill. And in New Testament times, a bit like our own, gift giving and returning played a very significant role in building and maintaining personal and social relationships. Although now in the West, we restrict gift giving and return to the private sphere only. Otherwise, you might end up at ICAC. And most gift giving, grace, is discriminating giving. That is, it takes into account the worthiness of the recipient. A gift is usually congruent. That is, appropriate for the person receiving it. I'll return to this in just a moment. But what about God's grace? It's not just any gift. For the grace of God has appeared that offers or brings, could translate either way, salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation for all people. Two things. One, when, God, when Paul writes about the grace of God has appeared, he's actually writing about something which has happened. By itself, the phrase, the grace of God has appeared, could be read just that God has simply revealed his benevolent character. But no, God's grace has appeared when God's gift has appeared. What was that? Well, the best gloss on what this means is in the book before Titus, in that way we organise our Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 and 10. Very similar in language to Titus, you'll notice. There in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 and 10, Paul writes how God, as he puts it, saved us and called us to to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Then he explains what he means by grace. Verse 9, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Just let your brain take that for a moment. That takes some thinking about. The grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Got that? Then he goes on, verse 10. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Grace... May have been given to us in Christ before time, but it's revealed now in the appearing of our Savior. God's grace has appeared, you might say, as our Savior himself, as Christ. And by appeared, Paul doesn't just mean what we've been thinking about the last few weeks at Christmas and so forth. He means, I think, in particular, the events of the gospel, in particular, the resurrection of the crucified Savior who brought life immortality to light through the gospel. So the first point is, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all, is the, is the appearance of Christ, the gift of God. Secondly, God's grace, which has appeared, is not discriminating. It brings or offers salvation to all people, literally to all anthropoi, the Greek word for man or humans. It's for all humans. That is, it does not take into account the worthiness of the recipient. It is not congruent, that is, appropriate for the person receiving it. The standing of the recipients does not cut any ice with God. Now, this Paul makes clear to Titus in something he writes a little later in chapter three, verse three and five, to five. Paul, at this point of the letter, is describing the bad behavior of people in Crete, but also says, frankly, we were like this too. I quote verse three, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, There's that word again. He saved us, not because righteous things were done, but because of his mercy. In other words, it was unconditioned. It was because of his mercy. And the next sentence, Paul goes on to talk about how we've been justified, that is, considered in good standing by his grace, by his gift. Now, we may take all that a bit for granted. And if you go to a church, which, like this one, where I hope the teaching is of quality standard, you, you, you'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard, some, I've heard some of that before, perhaps. If you come to any, any, any of our services based upon the book Common Prayer, you'll find it, it's soaked in it, particularly the communion service. But this idea of aspect of God's grace, the second part of it I'm talking about, that is indiscriminate, was quite radical and even subversive to Paul's world. Listen to what John Barclay of Durham University, who has done a major research project on the meaning of grace in Paul, says about the normal idea of grace in Paul's time, the normal idea of gift back in the first century. I quote, it was very common in Paul's world to speak of the worth of the recipient gifts should be given lavishly, but discriminately to fitting or worthy recipients worth could be established in different ways, according to the number of criteria, ethnicity, social status, age, gender, moral virtue, beauty or success, just as today prizes might be awarded on different grounds for musical, literary, sporting, or academic achievement, but keep their value only if they are given discriminatory to people worthy of them. So the good gift in antiquity was normally given according to some criteria of worth. He goes on, this is also true of the gift of the gods or God. God would hardly waste gifts on the unfitting or confuse the moral and social order by giving it to unworthy recipients. It was obvious to ancient philosophers that God's best gift be given to those who are free, not slaves, to the educated, the male, the virtuous, and the grateful. If you receive the divine gift, it is because you are worth it." End of quote. The gospel turned that on its head. The gospel turned that on its head. You see this in Jesus' ministry where he offers the kingdom of God to tax collectors, sinners, those non-observant, outside of the realm of any sense of obeying God. But they are offered it. We see it in Paul, who, though a man of considerable spiritual and cultural worth in his day, came to consider all that, as he puts it, as lost garbage for the sake of Christ. He also see it in Paul, as he realises, because of this indiscriminate gift of Christ, God, the God of Israel, would accept the pagans, even the pagans, Gentiles, or the nations, on the same terms as Israel, effectively relativising the whole point of Torah observance. And we see how the indiscriminate grace of God subverts powerful social and class distinctions of his day. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Two of them profound differences. Neither they're male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The indiscriminate grace of God has been revolutionary in history as well. For example, in the 16th century in Europe, The rediscovery of this aspect of God's grace shook the church in what's become known as the Reformation. And it's had profound impact upon the formularies and authorised liturgy of our church, which has its roots in the Church of England. That's history and today. Well, I think there's a paradox today in that we, I mean we, as a gentle society, really don't believe in the indiscriminate grace of God while at the same time think it's obvious. I think we really don't believe in it at the same time I, we think it's obvious. We don't really believe it because deep down we are committed to the belief that, that if there is a God and cares for people, he'll give it to those in some sense worthy. And that will either affect us if we are a person of worth, intellectual, spiritual, ethnic, Standing, you'll feel that. Or, on the other hand, if you are despairing and feel at the bottom of life's appeal, you think, well, I've got nothing for me. I, I'm, you'll despair by this teaching. But underneath, there's this deep underlying feeling that God helps them what helps themselves. But at the same time, we think it's obvious that God forgives people. It's obvious. Now, one reason we think it's obvious is because of our shallow grasp of what God's grace really means. At the time of the Reformation, for example, the understanding of God's indiscriminate grace came to many as a wonderful, life-changing discovery. That's because in late medieval Europe there was a deep sense of the judgment of a holy God and the crucial importance of being in right standing with him. That is being justified. That dominated the culture. And when, therefore, it was discovered that there had been some misunderstanding about God's grace, the result was a wonderful lifting of, of joy, though it was contested, I will admit. Today, the sense of a holy God to whom we are accountable has faded, if, if almost entirely lost to our culture. And so, therefore, the wonder of God's indiscriminate grace bringing salvation fades as well. And one of the problems is we are, to, we are familiar with it, or think we are. Do you know what is the most, maybe the most recorded song ever? Has appeared in over 11,000 albums and reckoned to be performed 11 million times annually. And this morning, it'll be 11 million and one. Amazing Grace by John Newton. Now, Newton wrote that out of a profound experience of God's grace to a lost, blind sinner. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But it's often taken by, take taken for granted that, that, that God forgives everybody. I think 19th century German romantic poet Heinrich Heiner speaks for many when he famously quipped, Dieu me perdonerà, c'est God will forgive, it is his job which is met here, that's where most people think. And that's what I mean when I say we're in a paradoxical situation where we don't really believe it on the one hand, but we take it for granted on the other. What we need to do, my dear brothers and sisters, is to rediscover the wonder and delight of the statement, the grace of God has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. This amazing grace. I want to bring this home with the help of another, much better, Anglican minister to speak for me. The 17th century poet, the Reverend George Herbert. I'm going to conclude by reading his poem, Love Three, and I encourage you to turn to page two, the Order of Service, because it's a beautiful poem, but pays close attention. The poem is a dialogue between the poet and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is spoken of by the name Love, that's that's how he's designated, and it's about being invited to a meal and whether you are worthy of that invitation. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed Love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, oh my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Then, my dear, I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I'll ask the music group to come down the front. And when they're ready, we're gonna sing that song.